He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy. It's a story about how a hillbilly, that's what he called himself, so a hillbilly in Kentucky ended up graduating from Yale Law School or Harvard, whatever Ivy League school, and the story of how he went from basically rags to riches. He said that after he had gone through law school, all sorts of doors started to open up to him that had never before because of that pedigree of being a graduate from that university. He was interviewing with one law firm, and they have this dinner that's supposed to be one of the, like, really important interviews, even though it's an informal interview. It was in Washington, D.C., and the New York office came down, and if you did well at the dinner, you'd get invited to the final interviews for this great prestigious job in New York City. He said he was trying to be himself the hillbilly self to some degree, but he realized that he had never been at a fancy restaurant before. He said the wine glasses looked like they were Windex. The guy serving him was wearing a suit that was not bought three suits for one at Joseph A. Bank like he was used to. He said it looked like it was made of silk. The linens on the table were softer than his bed sheets. He tried to touch them without being weird about it. The whole thing was just like going through a museum, he was checking everything out. That it was unfortunate that he would be at one of the nicest restaurants, eating the most expensive meal he's ever eaten, with such high stakes to try and get this job. And he almost blew it. By the time he sat down for dinner, he realized that he needed to focus on the job at hand and not touring the restaurant and all of the delicacies around. So he sat down and the waitress asked, would you like water from the tap or sparkling water? He rolled his eyes thinking, sparkling water? What in the world is this? That sounded quite pretentious. Is it some sort of sparkling crystals or diamonds inside of the water? He said, I better try this out. And he did. No idea what it was. A few minutes later, he took a sip, and literally, as soon as it touched his mouth, <laughs> spit it out all over the table. Could you imagine? He said, it was the grossest thing I had ever tasted. I remember one time getting a Diet Coke at a Subway and realizing that the fountain machine did not have enough Diet Coke syrup in it, and that's exactly what this fancy space's sparkling water tasted like. So he told the waitress right away, ma'am, there is something wrong with this water. The waitress apologized and told me, well, I will get another Pellegrino. Then he realized what sparkling water was and was mortified. Now, that's a little story of you're expecting one thing, and then all of a sudden it hits your taste buds, and whoa, that's something very, very different. I had a very similar experience when I was touring through Europe one time, and I had no idea that if you asked for water in Europe, they would give you sparkling water, and I almost spit it out of my mouth. Thankfully, I didn't, but the reason I share this is in this morning's final letter of the church to Laodicea, we're going to see some surprises, some things that maybe you're not even expecting, and so I want us to turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. 
Revelation chapter 3. We've been looking week by week now for eight weeks at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And if you need help, you can find that on page 1030 in the Black Bibles in front of you. As always, I encourage you to turn your Bibles there because I want you to see that what we're talking about this morning comes from God's Word and not my ideas or agendas. This is one of the most well-known passages, and for that I want to give us a heads up before we read it. Sometimes the more well-known a passage is, the more ideas you come in to the text with. So Some of you this morning may feel like you understand what this is saying, and maybe by the end of this message you realize, oh, I actually didn't. A little surprise. You think you're getting one thing, and then, oh, you're actually hearing something else altogether much different. Another heads up I want to give you is that I want to help us this morning in the way I structured this message. I want the first point that I give to be something I think that if you know very little about the Bible, if all you did this morning was read the Bible slowly, contemplatively, and try and make sense of it, I think you could get the main point of this text. And I think that's true for most of the Bible. However, what we're going to find in the second and third point, and they're going to very much be one half of this message, and then part two of this message, and then points two and three are are, are well connected together, that when you study the Bible more deeply, its grammar, its historical context, that's really helpful and sheds light on things that might lead you a little astray, number one. And number two, paints the picture more fully. And so we want to look at those things But I don't want to look at them first. I want to first just look at the text and see if maybe just by looking at the text, no other history books, no other sources, we could understand what God's Word is trying to say to us. So that's the plan this morning. Hopefully you'll get the big idea. And so I want to read the passage first. It's Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 14. And it goes like this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So what's the big idea? No other background, no other context, no history books. Is Jesus pleased? Or is he a little upset? 
read this passage, and I don't think it's too hard to see that Jesus is not so pleased. Now, I'll explain this more in a second, but it seems like Jesus is expecting this church to be either when He comes to them, and He's going he's to metaphorically drink them. They're, they're an offering for the Lord to drink and consume, and He's going to drink them, and He's expecting it will either be a nice cup of hot tea or a nice cold glass of water, but instead it is lukewarm and it makes Him sick. He was expecting, as you see very clearly in this text, zealousness. See that in verse 19? So be zealous. He's looking for a church full of zeal, full of passion. He's looking for a church full of repentance. And so I've tried to summarize it this way. Point one, the main point that I think all of us could see, Jesus is sick of self-reliant Christians who are full of compromise. Jesus is sick with self-reliant Christians full of compromise. Isn't that very plainly and clearly exactly what we just read? I know your works. You're, you're not cold. You're not hot. You're, you're lukewarm. You're disgusting. And I'm spitting you out of my mouth. Now, I could tell you and break down in the grammar study that that word spit is emeo, and it means to vomit. Now, that does put a little more intensity to that word spit, but does that really make the point any different? Well, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's a little bit better, isn't it? No, that's still pretty bad. The, the main idea is still clear. Whether we do the grammar study or not, you get it right here in your English. So read it in Greek, read it in English. Jesus is disgusted with these Christians. He's disgusted with this church. If you've been reading all of the surrounding context, so not historical context, but just the verses around it, and all of you can do this, you'll notice that in each letter he would talk about some good things that are going on in the church. I know your works. I know your good deeds, your patient endurance. I know you're standing for my name. I know that even though some of you have committed a lot of sexual immorality, there's a few of you that are still, still holding on to the Word. That's what we've read for the last six weeks. But if you read this carefully and slowly, he says nothing good. There's not even a few of them. He's completely disgusted with them. And then there's that famous verse in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. A lot of times this has been used, if you've heard this verse, as a call for salvation. But he's talking to the church. And he's talking to a church of people who he's encouraging to repent. And he's telling this church, I'm outside the door. I'm not in the church. I'm not eating with you. The church is supposed to regularly eat with Jesus through the bread and the cup. But He's not there at the table. He's not there in their midst. He's an outsider because that's exactly how they're treating Him. As an outsider. His presence is not known and felt. He's not honored or revered. And He is sick of their gathering. They are a Christless One of the defining moments of my Christian life was when I got hold of a book called Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. I gave out two copies just last week. So they're floating around even in this church. 
The book opens startling. An attention-grabbing opening line. Michael Horton says, What would things look like if Satan took control of your city? And you start thinking. Immorality, violence, murder, idolatry, Satan worship, people running around like crazy. It'd be chaos, right? That's what it would look like. But I was thinking. And then this bomb got dropped on my head, you know? He said, well, over a half century ago, a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse in Philadelphia, in one of his sermons, offered this scenario. And he said that if Satan took over the city of Philadelphia, I believe all the bars in our city would be closed down. All pornography would be banished. The streets would look pristine. They'd be filled with tidy pedestrians smiling at each other, politely. No swearing, of course. The children would say, yes, sir. No, ma'am. And the churches? They would be full every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. That's, that's a lot to swallow. That's how the book started, and it started to get me thinking. Are you thinking this morning? Could there be a whole city, a whole nation, a whole church full of people who are deceived, thinking that they're doing all of these wonderful things, and God is so happy with them, and it's Christless. It's moralism, it's deism, it's, I believe in God, but very little care for the, the God of the Bible, very little care for Jesus Christ. Christ is not boldly preached. No, He's not even in their church. He's standing outside the door knocking, wanting to come in. But they have shut Him out. Now we've got to ask the question, why? Why are they shutting Jesus out? Why is Jesus so disgusted? And Again, I don't think this takes a lot of biblical scholarship. I think all of us in this room, if you were to read all seven letters together, see the heartbeat of Jesus through the words of John here in these first two chapters, you would have seen again and again. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Hold that word there. My faithful witness. Antipas died. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 in the church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The world is coming after Christians who are bold in their faith. Is that not what we've seen week after week after week in this study? Those that are bold in their faith, full of Christ in their gatherings, Proclaiming the gospel outside of their gatherings are facing severe persecution. What we have here in Laodicea is compromise. 
Let me have enough Jesus to call myself Christian, but not too much to get myself persecuted. This is why G.K. Beale, in his excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, says that Laodicea is being called to renew its commitment to Christ and become an effective witness for Christ. This renewal will certainly then lead to persecution, tribulations, and probably material poverty. Hmm. Material poverty. That starts to make sense when you read this text. Because they have so much to lose. They're so rich. Let me have enough Jesus to call myself a Christian, but not too much to lose any of my money, my status, my economic standing, my job, my work with the guilds who worship idols. I need to make sure I don't go too radical for They're right in the middle. They're lukewarm. They're not cold. They're not hot. And remember that all of these introductions of all these letters include extremely relevant words for each of these churches. So go back to the introduction. Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. You guys know what Amen means? Every once in a while you'll be in church, you might hear somebody say, Amen. We just read 1 Timothy 6. Did you notice that that passage ended with amen? And then some of you said amen afterwards. What does that even mean? Is that just Christian lingo? Is that just insider talk? Do we even know what we're saying when we say it? Jesus will sometimes use this word and He will say amen, amen. And He means truly, truly. That's what you would have read in your Gospels. Truly, truly. Because the word just means it's true. So when someone says amen, they're saying that's true. I agree with that. That's good. I like that. Amen. Anyone want to agree with that? Amen. That's what the word means. But here's the interesting thing. Nowhere in all of the Bible except for here in one prophecy in Isaiah talking what I think about Jesus is amen called a person. It's not amen like, oh, that's true. It's no, I am the amen. How awesome is that? I am what is true. I am the way. I am the truth. I am truth. Amen. I am the amen. You can just call me amen. One of the names of Jesus. He is the amen. So he is the true one. And secondly, he is the faithful and true witness. Now, do you remember who died for being a faithful witness earlier? Antipas. Did you remember reading in 1 Timothy 6 when Stacy read that scripture reading? Jesus kept the good confession of faith before Pilate and the government leaders, and he died. He was the faithful witness. Jesus was faithful unto death. He is the true one who was and is and is to come. He died and rose again, which is what I believe this last phrase is talking about, the beginning of God's creation. This would take a lot of exegetical work for me to explain. If you'd like the explanation, ask me after the service. But I believe this is referring to a passage in Isaiah chapter 65, and it's telling you about Jesus being the new creation. So not the beginning of the first creation. When he resurrected from the dead, he was the first of the new creation that got started. And I believe that's what he's referring to here. So I am the true one. I am the faithful witness. And I am the beginning of the new creation. And you do not have enough guts You do not have enough faith to put your name on the line, even though I've done all of this for you. That makes me sick. I literally want to vomit and gag in my mouth when I think about you. 
Are you starting to see what Jesus means when he says they're lukewarm? No historical context yet? We'll get there, and it's good. Trust me. Not throwing out Greek words. Just reading the Bible. This is what Jesus is saying. You make me sick. You call yourself a Christian, but you won't go far enough to actually say, yes, I'm even willing to die. Yes, I'm willing to suffer loss. You suffered everything for me, but I'm only willing to give a little bit for you, Jesus. He says they're self-reliant Christians. He says, you say that you don't even need anything. You have all that you need. All the wealth that you need. You're filthy rich. All the clothes you could want. They do not realize that they are actually poor, pitiable, naked. Is it possible that Jesus thinks that some of us or maybe even all of us are sick and he wants to vomit us out of our mouth, out of his mouth? Could there be any more relevant question at this point? Okay, so that's, it's a possibility that this church was. So could it be possible that some of you are here in this room and, and you make Jesus sick? Could it be possible that this church then could get to a point where we collectively, we gather together and we make Jesus. At this point, we need to be extremely careful. I think it's, it's the most important question we need to ask right now, but we need to be careful in how we answer it. And, and I say that because we have seen throughout God's Word that His Word is a sharp, two-edged sword, right? It judges. That's, that's the image. The sword brings judgment. It's a battle weapon. Jesus comes and does battle with his sword. And he pierces the heart. And what I'm afraid is that sometimes too many pastors, teachers, and maybe even some of you in this room take this passage. And we take this big sword of Jesus. And we start whipping it around and we have no idea where it's going. I mean, get the image of just this massive sword and you have no skill at how to use it. And you are just slaughtering people with God's word. That can happen. And oh, friends, it happens so often. So let's stop and pause and think. How can we rightly look at this sword in the face and know, should it rightly be piercing me in my heart right now? Or not? And so as I ask these questions for us, as I, 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 I want us to ask five questions. I'm going to ask questions, are you, and I want this to be the you plural, so I'm included in this, us, do, do we, okay? I want to ask five diagnostic questions to help us think through, are we lukewarm? Question number one, are you, are, are we dependent on God for our daily bread? All of these, by the way, are flowing out of what we just read in this passage. I'm not just making these up like, oh, here's some good thoughts, pastoral wisdom. I could do that, but I'm flowing from this passage. He says, you don't need me. You have all that you need. You're content with just you, your material wealth, your possessions, your status, your job, your family. You don't need me. So question number one, do you daily pray the Lord's Prayer? Not verbatim but in your heart. Give me, Lord, my daily bread, because without you, I will not eat today. 
Can I be honest? That's extremely convicting to me. If I want daily bread, I'll just go in the kitchen and grab some food. I'll just go to the grocery store. Why do I need to pray to Jesus to ask for daily bread? There's a lot of bread at the store. I have some money in the bank account. You see how easy this is for us to not become dependent on Jesus for our every need. Do you remember when we talked about the Holy Spirit? It is only because of God's Holy Spirit that you're breathing right now. It's only because of His Spirit that your heart is still beating. Do you live in daily dependence that your life is only being upheld by the powerful Word of God and that without that Word, your heart stops beating, your lungs stop breathing, and any moment famine could come to this land. Don't think that we would not be exempt from God bringing natural disasters over the face of the United States of America. Grocery stores close down, prices skyrocket, and you can't even pay for milk. We're proud if you think otherwise. God, give me my daily bread so I eat today. Is that you? Is that us? God, give us, Embassy Church, the finances we need. Question two. Are you daily dying to yourself to use your gifts, talents, and resources to serve others? Are you being a faithful witness, in other words? Jesus was the faithful witness. This church is compromising they're not using their gifts to be a faithful witness. So all of you in this room, if you call yourself a Christian, then that means you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You admit that you're a sinner, that you need His help to forgive you of your sin, and that when you believe upon Him by faith, that He gives you the Holy Spirit. He uses what He already made with the original creation of you, and He makes a new person with a new spirit to serve Him, to die daily, and give your resources, your wealth, your time, your energy, your passions, not for your own service to yourself, but for other people. Question three, are you afraid to share the gospel with people at work or at home, with friends, family members, neighbors? Not just you get nervous sometimes, like you just won't do it at all. Not really even that convicted about it. Yeah, maybe one day. And really, when you get to the, the very root and core of why you won't bring up Jesus in those contexts, it's because you're afraid of what people will think about you. You don't want to lose their relationship. You don't want to lose the status. You, I could lose my job if I talk too much about Jesus. Well, what if my family disowns me? What if my friends stop hanging out with me? Question number four. What are you willing to lose for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to become materially poor, relationally lonely, advancements in your career? What if you lose some of your coveted free time to serve other people? What are you willing to lose? Faithful witnesses in Revelation 2 and 3 are willing to lose everything on this earth because they have everything in the earth to come. Question five. This might be the most important question out of all of them. And in one sense, you could use this question to go back through questions one through four. If you look at the big picture of your Christian life, not your whole life, but just the time when you consider, yeah, this has been the time I've been a Christian. 
if you look at the big picture of it, not just right now in this moment, like, man, I'm feeling really guilty. Let's say the last year. If you've been a Christian for longer, let's say the last five years. If you've been a Christian longer than that, keep going. If you look at the big picture of your Christian life, would you say that you, over the course of time, are growing in repentance, moving toward Jesus? Ups and downs, peaks and valleys, but over the course of time, you're seeing ever-increasing faithfulness to grow in Christ. Committed to a long obedience in the same direction. Is that what your Christian life looks like? Some of you, this might be a message that hits you because you're feeling like, yeah, I've been, I've been slacking lately. And then you take that sword and you just kill yourself with it. Unnecessarily. Beat yourself up day after day because, man, I am lukewarm. Step back a little bit. You might be in a valley right now. You might be struggling, addicted. But can you look over the course of time and see God by his grace is keeping me, holding me, wooing himself to me, and I keep returning to him again and again. Now, my assignment to you all, especially if you are feeling like, okay, I think, I think this passage is talking about me. If you're reading this right, Jesus says he will spit you out of his mouth. He's not saying he is spitting you out of your mouth. Do you see the text? Look back again. Verse 16. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will, future tense, spit you out of my mouth. This is a warning. I will spit you out of my mouth. Judgment will come. If you are lukewarm right now and you're coasting, just enough Jesus to call yourself a Christian. That's you. Is there anything more important than you to answer those five questions with a friend? Somebody in this church. I don't think there is. We're talking about heaven, hell, all of eternity at the stake. This spit is not, well, I'm kind of upset. It's, I am disgusted. You are vomit in my mouth. You're blind. You're naked. How many times have you said amazing grace and said, I once was blind and now I'm blind again? That's not how Christians are described in the Bible. Blind, naked, pitiful, poor people are non-Christians. So if you remain that way without long, persistent obedience and repentance, and you just stay exactly where you are thinking, eh, he'll forgive me eventually, you are playing with fire. You are already burning almost, you know? So there is no more important thing for you to do than maybe even today, as soon as this service is over, to feel the conviction of God's Spirit upon you and say, I'm going to take someone from this church and help them walk through those five questions. And if you want those five questions, I will send them to you gladly to walk through this text and think about its implications. Because, friend, you will not be the best perception of yourself. These people sure weren't. They think they're doing really well, and you might too. So even if you're wondering, I don't, I don't know, then sit down with someone this week, soon. There's no time to delay. This is not games. Why would you put all of eternity in the balance That's point number one. 
Jesus is sick of lukewarm people. And these final two points, I will bring in historical context and meditation that when we look at this passage further, I think it will help us immensely in wonderful ways. Wonderful ways to see Jesus more beautiful than maybe you've seen him before. Wonderful ways to receive comfort and hope for your guilty soul because you're feeling a little pierced and the wound is going deeper the more we talk about it and I need some, I need some healing here. Point number two. Jesus knows everything about you. Have you ever had a moment in your life where your stomach just dropped or got into knots because somebody said something about you that they weren't supposed to know and it made you feel really embarrassed? Have you ever felt like there was a secret that you had or something personal about you that when someone else found out about it, you all of a sudden were like, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do? Like my whole world right now is in the balance because my reputation's on the line. If people find out about this, I'm doomed. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know why you feel that way? Because they now have an, a, a power, an authority. They know something, and what are they going to do with that? They could love you, serve you with that knowledge. Man, they could gossip. They could slander. They could tell all kinds of people about you. And that's why you're afraid. This letter is loaded with Jesus making it clear, as he has in all the letters, I know you, I know everything about you. There's not a secret that you have that I don't know. I know you inside and out. I know you better than you know yourself. Five things. Five things that if we look at the historical context of this letter, you'll see that Jesus knows these people inside and out. First, Laodicea was a banking center that had lots of gold, and there's historical record that at one point they didn't give enough taxes, so the soldiers came in and took a bunch of their gold. They were rich, filthy rich, a banking center. You know what happens when you have a bunch of financial people dealing with banks, handing out loans, making lots of money off of other people? That's what Laodicea was for the whole region. second thing we learned about this city is that they were so wealthy that when a huge earthquake came, now you remember Philadelphia last week, and we already know that this area is full of earthquakes, and when Philadelphia experienced an earthquake, they were so weak and so few in number and had such little bit of resources that everybody was trying to help them out. Laodicea, when they had an earthquake just maybe 20 years before this letter came, so even more recent than the Philadelphia earthquake, when that earthquake came and destroyed so much of their city, they told the Roman um, soldiers and, and government help and what do they call that today? The Red Cross, etc. Think of that equivalent. They just said, nope, we're good. There's historical record of Laodicea shortly before this letter comes. Earthquake destroys their city and they say, we don't need anybody's help. We're fine. And they rebuilt their whole city with their own resources. Number three, this city was known for black wool. You know, black sheeps, skin off all the fur, and they had black wool markets. And apparently, it was the hottest thing around. They were not just dressed, they, they were fancy. They were the best dressed. Now, I don't know if you're starting to think in your mind, man, this sounds like New York City. This sounds like Hollywood. This sounds like, you start thinking in your mind, 
the fanciest, most wealthiest banking centers with the best-dressed people. That's, that's what Laodicea was like. Number four, they boasted of having one of the greatest medical schools in the whole world. More particularly, they said that they had the best optometry school. And optometry is eye care. The best eye doctors who came up with a salve that would fix eye problems. So you start putting these things together. Lots of money, lots of gold. They, can, they don't need anybody's help. They're self-sufficient. They've got the best dressed wool. They're making lots of money off the wool. They got eye doctors. They got health care. Good health care. There's one thing they don't have. One thing that they lack. And I'm not talking just about Jesus. They definitely lack Jesus. Materially speaking, you study Laodicea, they had no water. They had one river that went through the city, and it was too shallow that Middle East heat would often dry that thing up. And when it wasn't dried up, it was so muddy because it was so shallow that no one could ever get any good out of it. Couldn't drink it. So you know what they built? They're still standing to this day. You can go and visit them. Aqueducts. These aqueducts would transport water from two different places. To the north, they transported water that was from a hot spring. So it was boiling hot water that then went on the aqueduct and came and made its way all the way down to Laodicea. Then to the south, Colossae. Some of you might know in the Bible in the New Testament, Colossians. The Colossian church in Colossae. They're not too far away. Well, they had cold springs. And they had this nice, cool water. And they would bring that water up to Laodicea. But just like the river, the warm Middle Eastern heat warmed that water up by the time it made it to Laodicea. It was full of minerals that were bad for your stomach, and it was lukewarm. Anybody that comes to Laodicea knew that they had nasty water. Never drink it. This is unbelievable, isn't it? Jesus is not just giving some general letter here. He knows this church. He knows what they're like. He knows what their culture is. He knows what they're struggling with. Why do you think every time he writes these letters, it starts out in verse 15? I know your works. I know all about you. Now listen to the letter again. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. You're not the hot springs or the cold springs. By the time we get to you, you're lukewarm. And I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You make my stomach sick, just like everybody who tries to drink those water from the aqueducts. You say that you're rich. You have great prosperity in all these banks and gold. Well, I don't need the government's help. Not realizing that you are, in fact, a wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. Oh, how about those medical schools now? You are naked. Cover yourself all you want with those black wool, those finest clothing. You and my eyes are naked. I counsel you, buy from me now the gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And then get from me white garments, not black garments. So you may clothe yourself with the shame of your nakedness. And it won't be seen anymore. And then I'll give you some real salve. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you will actually see see what you should have been seeing all along. 
that, that help you read the text a little better? Now, we got the point before knowing all of those historical points. I think so, right? So by way of quick parentheses, one of the ways studying all of the history with the passage is you won't say something, I think, a little foolish. It's okay if you've ever thought this before. I did too. I'll admit it. Well, Jesus wants you to be hot or cold. He either wants you to be on fire for him or cold, hard-hearted. Just don't be lukewarm. That's not what the text is saying. The cold water's good. The hot water's good. Cold and hot were good things. The lukewarm, nasty water. So don't take the cold as some desire of Jesus. Now, you start to think about it. That sounds strange. Jesus wishes that people would be so cold-hearted toward him. That doesn't sound like Jesus. He sees cold-hearted Jerusalem. He weeps and says, oh, Jerusalem. That's what Jesus don't read this text incorrectly and think cold equals spiritually cold. Cold means good. Some of you like iced coffee. Some of you like hot coffee. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. And some people just think coffee is all disgusting. You could spit all of it in their mouth. Like me. So close that parenthesis up. See how this helps us from error in our study of the passage. Let's look back at verse 15. I know your works. I know you. I know all about you. He knows everything about you, friend. He knows your heart, your intentions, your thoughts. What if we put on the screen behind me every thought you've had in the last week? Would any of you want to still sit here? Would you be embarrassed if we so exposed you? Would you feel naked? Even if you were well clothed, I would encourage you to stay well clothed, please. Jesus knows. He knows all about it. And this could be good news or bad news for us. And in our case, this is good news because the one who knows everything, he has the power, and guess what he's going to do with that authority, that power to know everything? Point number three. Jesus knows everything about you, and he still loves you and pursues you and wants to be with you. He still loves you. He knows everything about you. He's not going to blackmail you with this information. He's not going to try and hurt your reputation. He's going to try and make you a whole new person, and he's going to use this information for your good. That's what he's doing. I know all about you. I know you better than you know yourself. You think you know yourself. You think that you are rich, but you're not. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells us what he wants us to know. That if we come to him, knowing what he knows, he knows it all, he still wants to give us gold refined by fire so we become rich, white garments so we be clothed of our nakedness, salve to make our eyes see because, look at verse 19, because I love you. I love you. I would not be saying this. I would not be doing this. I would not be talking harshly and reproving and disciplining you if I did not consider you one of my sons, one of my daughters. I love you too much to just let you stay lukewarm. So he knows everything about them. He knows exactly what they're like. He knows they're lukewarm. And he doesn't spit them out yet. He gives them time. He gives them warnings. And he pleads with them. Repent. Be zealous. That's what Jesus wants. 
He's knocking on the door and he says, let me back in the church. I want to be with you. So Jesus takes all of this information and knowledge and what does he do with it? He loves you with it. He loves you like you've never been loved before. If, you've, if you're not married or you've never experienced the intimacy of marriage, let me help you understand something. One of the most beautiful things about the gift of marriage and why it pictures the gospel is because in marriage, you get the privilege of sharing life with someone and completely exposing yourself, being vulnerable, sharing your deepest, darkest secrets, being literally naked and consummating the marriage together. All of these things are this one big picture of what if I am that way? Will they still love me? What if I share what happened to me when I was a teenager? What if I share what happened last week? Will they still forgive me and love me? And marriage is this picture where somebody can know you in a way that no one else in the whole world knows you. That intimately, that deeply, that personally. And then look you in the face. This is amazing. When they look you in the face and they say, I love you. Even with all this junk? Yeah. I still love you. That's just a picture. By God's grace, I've experienced for the last 13 plus years to know a woman slowly and gradually like that. Just a taste, a little foretaste of the love of Jesus for his bride. If you're not individually married here on this earth, you're not missing out. I mean, you're not married, but you're not missing out on that kind of intimate love. Someone knows you better than even a spouse. Someone already knows your secrets before you confess them. Someone knows everything that you've ever done or thought, and then they look you in the face and they say, I still love you. I'm not going anywhere. Do you hear what he's saying to this church in Laodicea? You guys are disgusting, but I'm not going anywhere. And that's the part I feel like has been so mispreached. I listen to sermons and it's all just taking the sword and whacking people with it. You're all just a bunch of lukewarm American Christians. You're so wealthy and rich. Don't you realize you need to depend on Jesus for everything? Now that's true. We need to hear that word. But more than anything, you need to leave today hearing the word. I know all about your pride. I know all about your self-reliance, and I still want you. I'm knocking. Open up. You see the passion of Jesus to pursue his bride no matter what she does. So beautiful. So great that Jesus closes out the seven letters with this. So wherever we're at, Embassy Church, know that Jesus is chasing and wanting you. I pray, I pray we'd be repentant a long obedience in the same direction. We'll have some good days and good years. We'll have some bad days and bad years. We'll grow as a church. We'll grow individually. But let's know he's coming after us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to give you great, great thanks. This is love. You gave everything for us. You gave us life so we can breathe. You gave us eternal life so we can be born again. You gave us Christ so we can have communion and fellowship and never be alone. You gave us forgiveness so that no matter what we've done to sin against you, you offer right now in this moment through your preached word forgiveness. 
There is no nakedness that you cannot cover. No shame that you cannot clothe. There is no poverty that you cannot make rich. God, we want to confess now that we, we want to admit, and I pray, I pray collectively around this room in our hearts, we're collectively admitting, God, we know ourselves to be poor, naked, pitiful. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. And so we come to you and we buy with nothing. Empty hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. No good works of righteousness. No tears. No matter how much they flow, could they ever atone? No zeal. Just coming to you, Jesus. Broken, humble, needy. We need you. We need you now as we take this bread and cup to not go through this ritual and think it's just some rote, weekly tradition. Help us even now to see your body and blood has made us rich, clothed with you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing this.